Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, um, I'm going to age myself just, just a little bit today in this. I, I will know here in just a moment with a little bit of participation on your part who's with me and who, came, who, can, who comes after me is what I'm saying. All right, and I mean by decades here is, is what I'm talking about. If, if, if some of you have, have listened, they could, and man, they used this. This was, this was a network, a CB, oh, oh okay, it wasn't CBS, by the way, but I just kind of let a little bit of the cat out of the bag. Sorry about that. All right, a television network used this to kind of promo, intro into all different sorts of sporting events. And if you can finish this phrase with me, I will know that you, like me, are just a little bit seasoned been around a little while okay and here's what it is the thrill of victory the agony of defeat the agony it's interesting there must the, the first service must be a little more seasoned than this service because there was a lot more participation or some of you are like I ain't gonna say it I'm just not gonna do it I know it and I, I can see it in your eyes you know exactly what I'm talking about but you're like I'm not old I'm not gonna say it all right let me ask you this those who did respond do you know the guy who said that he was an ABC sportscaster. Anybody know? Anybody? His name was Jim, not McMahon, Jim McKay. Jim McKay. And do you remember, I mean, the agony of defeat. Do you remember the skier, like, doing the helicopter over, like, across the top of the building and stuff like that? you remember all that? And the young people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Let me tell you something. Some of the young people know what I'm talking about in this. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Anybody watch that, that game last Sunday night? Chiefs game? I watched that game over at my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's house. And as entertaining as that game was, and as tough as it was on my heart, it was more entertaining to watch my nephew Caleb. Okay? Because... Like, you're talking about the highest of highs to the lowest of lows to the highest of highs to the lowest of lows to the highest of highs to the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. I mean, like, face buried in the couch. Like, I can't. And what made it tough is his dad, my brother-in-law, is a Colts fan. You got to feel sorry for him, all right? And, and so he's, like, giving us a hard time the whole time. And then we're yelling back at him. And it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy. It really, really was. But after all the smoke cleared and it was all over and done with, I don't, man, somebody, somebody really needs to cut the pay, I'm telling you, of these, of these, these camera operators every time they go to somebody like Josh Allen. I mean, the game is over. He's sitting on the bench just staring at nothing, like broken. You understand what I'm saying here? And what are they going to put the, right on him? I'm sure he loved it. I'm sure he just loved that camera being right on him that whole time because he's just staring at nothing. And you see him and you're like, that is a broken... He's just like, I never even got a chance. I never even got a chance to go out there. I never even... You know, we probably use that term heartbroken a little too much. We probably do. We probably take it and use it in times when it's not really applicable, but we use it anyway. When it comes to the New Testament and heartbroken, because heartbroken has, it's, it's a lot of deep emotion going on when somebody is in a place of being heartbroken. 
And the New Testament word used for this, and many of you know this, it's like one of my favorite Greek words from the New Testament. I'm going to have, matter of fact, will you guys get to participate all, a whole bunch today because you're going to say it with me here in just a moment. The word is this, splachnon, okay? It's like you got to channel your inner German dialect for just a moment, okay? Splachnon. Why don't you put it up there, Zach, so they can see it. You got to throw the G in there, splachnon. So everybody say it with me, splachnon. All right. Now what this word is, it means inward parts. It means you're hurting. You're hurting. And let me tell you something, guys. We call it heartbroken. We call it heartache. But if you're hurting up here at any point in time, it's either you got gas or you're having a heart attack, okay? All right? I mean, that's, that's just what's going on. When you hurt down here because of your reaction to a situation or a person, that, that's block non. That's hurt. That's affection. That's compassion. And let me tell you something. In life... The vast majority of the time, real heartbreak, real heartbreak, almost always involves relationship. Relationship. So I told you, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're going to dig a little bit into the heart of the Apostle Paul. And when you look at Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, what you find here, actually Romans chapter 11 as well, what you see here is... is these two chapters get thrown around a bunch because within the Christian worldview, there is an ongoing debate that goes on about, about God and his control, okay, and man and his, I mean man by mankind, by us, by our responsibility. It, it looks a little like this. When you get to chapter 9 of Romans, it's all about God and his sovereignty, and I know that's kind of a fancy word. It's, it's basically this. God is in control. Okay? God knows all things. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knew you long before you were ever born. Matter of fact, he knew you everything there is to know about you before this world was even created because he's God. And when it comes to salvation as well, he's in control. So that is Romans chapter 9. And then you roll into Romans chapter 10, and what you find is this. When it comes to salvation, man has to respond. Now God plays the much bigger role in this because he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is God. He's in control. Romans 10 says that we as human beings must respond or choose not to respond to him. Now, that gets talked about a lot in religious circles. And sometimes in the midst of those conversations, what is forgotten and what is overshadowed is the greater context of Paul's heart in this text. Paul is the one doing the writing. And there's a big issue going on for Paul. You see, before he was Paul, he was Saul. Okay? And he was a Pharisee. Matter of fact, in his own words, he was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was climbing the ladder of power and success within the Jewish religious element and elite 
in a way that nobody else, I mean, he was climbing the ladder, folks. I mean, the guy was a force to be reckoned with. And as he's climbing on that ladder, there's something else he's not climbing on, but he's walking on, and it's this. He was on a highway to hell because he posed Christ. He opposed the followers of Christ. He saw Christ as a fraud and the followers as traitors, as heretics. He was trying so hard to silence this message of Jesus Christ that it led him to throw people in prison and to see to it that people were executed for this faith, for this belief. And Saul was on his way to a city called, a city named Damascus with letters of, I mean, it's basically arrest warrants is what they were, to go find believers in that town and arrest them. On the way there, he met Jesus. He met Jesus. It was an encounter that blinded him literally and confused him greatly. It rocked his world. You see, in Saul's mind, he was serving God by doing everything he could to put an end to this movement of Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, he's staring Jesus Christ in the face. And Jesus doesn't give him a whole lot of information. Jesus says, go to that town near Damascus, and you wait, because something's coming for you. His world was rocked. The guy's blind, he's confused, he doesn't know what to do. As a matter of fact, if you look closely at what happens next, for three days, he prays and he fasts. And this fast wasn't just not eating, he didn't drink anything either. Three days of drinking nothing and eating nothing and doing nothing but praying. Now, in the meantime, God shows up to a man named Ananias in Damascus who was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he said, you need to go talk to this Saul guy. Now, Ananias, he's like, oh, whoa, 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 I know about that guy. That guy's been throwing our people in prison. He's been watching people die. I mean, I know that guy. And, and, and God, Jesus said to Ananias, he is my chosen instrument. And he will present my message to the Gentile world. I mean, God is so, so ironic, is he not? It's funny how God does this. He takes the Pharisee of Pharisees to be <laughs> the messenger of his gospel to the Gentiles crazy how God works. So Ananias goes and he does this. Think about this for just a moment. If you hadn't eaten or drank anything for three days and the guy shows up, touches your eyes, and they're healed, you can see now, what's the first thing you're going to do? Give me something to drink and give me a Big Mac. I mean, come on. Now, first thing he does is he gets in the water. He gets in the water. Now, I'm not saying when he's baptized, he might not drink some, but I don't know. But I know this. He got in the water, and he was washed clean of his past and raised brand new. And let me tell you something about the apostle Paul. His name's still Saul at this time. He pursued his path in life with an incredibly reckless abandon. the apostle to the Gentiles. He followed this path come heck or high water. It did not matter. Every town, every city that he went to, this was Paul's MO. This is what he would do. He would go to the town and he would find the Jews. 
Whether it be a place of prayer like in Philippi or whether it be a synagogue like in Corinth. He would go to that place and he would present the message of the gospel first to the Jews. The problem was this. So few listened and responded to the message. And this was a huge problem for Paul. Because Paul knows that the Jews who are really the Israelites, that's that's their heritage, they are God's chosen people, and they're not responding to the life-saving message of the gospel. Guys, that's why we get Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because Paul did, it frustrated him to no end that God's chosen people would refuse to respond to the message of God. And that problem left Paul heartbroken. You don't believe me? We'll read the words of Paul. Would you usually apply this message to a follower of Jesus? God, I wish that you would curse me. I mean, have you ever heard, have you ever heard a brother or sister in Christ say that? God, please curse me. I want to be cursed. It's not something you would typically, you would apply that to an enemy of, of Christ, not a follower of Christ, but look at what Paul says. In Romans chapter 9, the first three verses. It's Paul speaking, and he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So he wants it to make it very clear here that he's speaking the truth about his heart. He goes on to say, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, the New American Standard uses the word accursed. I'm guessing your version, if it doesn't use that word, it says something along the lines of curse. There's something like that in there. And, and what, that, what that word in the Greek is wrapped up, oh, we can take a, this whole cursed and separated and put it into one word. That's what, that's what anathema means. To be separated from God. It's interesting that Paul would say this. He says it for a reason. He says it for the sake of my Jewish brothers and sisters, I wish I were a curse. If if they could be saved and the only thing that they needed to be saved was me being cursed and separated from, from you, Lord, for eternity, I'll sign me up. Paul's not the only one to use words like this, by the way. You can see words like this in Exodus, because Moses said something very similar. You see, Moses was up with God on Mount Sinai. He came down the mountain with these, with these two tablets on them were the, the law the, of God. We call it the Ten Commandments. And he's coming down, down the mountain and Joshua joins him about halfway down. And as they're coming down, man, there's something, there's something coming up. There's a sound coming from the base. And Joshua's like, they're fighting down there, Moses. And Moses says, I know. That's not fighting. That's, there's a party going on down there, son. While Moses was, was gone, they had built this golden calf and they were worshiping and scripture says they were playing. It wasn't pretty. And Moses is so angry when he comes down that mountain that he takes these two tablets that God wrote on with his own finger and in his temper tantrum, he throws them to the ground and they shatter. 
He calls out the people of God, the true followers of Yahweh, and he says, take up your swords. 3,000 people died that day. But God's wrath was not fulfilled, and God told Moses. This is what God said to Moses. He said, Moses, I'm going to take you. I'm done with him. I'm done with him. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make a nation from you. And Moses said, God, you can't do that. These are your people. And Moses, this is what Moses said to God. If you wipe them out, you wipe me out also. And God relented. The difference here is Paul wasn't accursed for the people. This wasn't a possibility. You see, God had given so much to these people, it wasn't like Paul could say, okay, God, kill me so that they will be saved. Somebody had already done that, and his name was Jesus. God had already paid the price, you understand? So Paul is making this sentiment, and I think he believed it. He's not just using these words for show, all right? I think Paul felt this way from the bottom of his heart. The problem is the price had already been paid, and they were not taking advantage of that price paid. Speaking of advantages, he then goes in to talk about some of the advantages these people have. Look back to Romans chapter 9. Again, as we wrap up verse 3, it says, These kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are they are." The Jews, and he says, who these Jews, these kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, they didn't get the name Jew until they were in Babylonian captivity about 500 years before this. So, so before that, they, they weren't Jews, they were Israelites, all right? Israelites, God's chosen people. Advantage number one. Whom belong, who, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? Advantage number two. They are adopted as God's chosen people. The glory and the covenants. Look what happens in Exodus. Everywhere that the nation of Israel goes, God's glory goes before them. The Shekinah, the glory of God. Uh, It goes on to say, and the covenants. That's not the law. That's the promises given to Father Abraham, who was their father. All right, and then it goes on to say this. They were given the law through Moses. They had the temple service. They had the promises Their fathers are the fathers, the patriarchs. And then catch how verse 5 ends. The ultimate advantage of the Jews. From whom is the Christ? You see, Jesus was what? He was God's son, is God's son. He was a Jew. The Messiah came from them. This Messiah who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. You see, in Paul's mind, he just doesn't get it. In Paul's mind, he's like, the Jews should be standing first in line to respond to this message of the gospel. Everything of their history puts them in that place. But the majority of them refused, and he knew firsthand their stubbornness. Because that was his old life. If you could have anything, what would it be? You got the old genie in the bottle, but you don't get three wishes, you get one. All right? You have anything. Just think about that for me. You have anything. What would it be? Your greatest wish, your greatest desire. 
You know, I can tell you without a shadow of doubt in my mind, the greatest desire of the Apostle Paul. We'll read about it in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul goes on to say, brethren, and he's speaking to his family in Christ now. His brothers and sisters in Christ. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul says, I testify about these people, these Jew, Jewish people, my heritage, my family. I mean, he's taking the role of a witness here. I mean, that's, that's what a witness does in the courtroom, right? They testify. They testify. And he says, I testify of them. They've got zeal. He's like, I know at first hand. I mean, I was killing people. I mean, I, I, mean, I was arresting people. He said that zeal isn't enough because that zeal isn't linked with truth, with knowledge. Brothers and sisters, he hurt for these people, and his greatest desire was their salvation. You know, I, I like to, I've spoken about many of you on Wednesday nights and some of you on Sunday morning as well, that, that, that I, like to write in, I like to write in my Bible. I hope you do too, because there's nothing about this, there's not a sacredness here that, that you, you can't write in it, okay? This is just paper, all right? What it represents is amazing. It is. It's, but it's, it's still kind of a textbook. It's a living textbook, if you understand what I'm saying here. Okay? And you never know if what you write in it might help you out a little ways down the line. And sometime or another, now I've had this Bible for about, going on about three years now. Okay, so this has to have been written somewhat recently. I did not write it this week. I would hope I remember that. But beside verse 1, I have this written in my Bible. It's a question. And this is it. Do I hurt like Do I hurt like the Apostle Paul? All right. Family in Christ, we got really practical last week. We, we took a look at what our interests, our talents, our, our possessions even can mean for us and what can do for us in our relationship with God. Sometimes those things get between us and God, and that's a bad thing. We need to eliminate that. But at other times, we can take those interests, we can take those things, we can take those talents, and we can use them for the kingdom. That's what we looked at last week. We got really practical, and I hope you prayed about that this week. Father, how, how, how do I use what you've given me for you? This Sunday, the question's a little different. This is the question this Sunday. What hurts your heart? What hurts our hearts? Because I'm going to include me in this. What hurts us? 
And I, this is not an exhaustive list, okay? What, what you, what you, you might have something else you want to write down here, all right? But I'm just going to throw a few things out here that might help us get to thinking very, very specifically about the heartache that we have in life. What hurts your heart? First question. Seeing people experience great loss, does that hurt your heart? Seeing people experience great loss? And I'm not just talking about uh, a materialistic type of loss here. I'm talking sometimes about just saying goodbye to somebody we love and we're not ready to say goodbye to yet. I know some people who don't go to funeral services. They'll do everything they can to avoid them. Now, some of those people who avoid them, they don't want to be reminded of the fact that that's going to be them one day. Okay? Because if the Lord tarries, we're all going to, to be put in a box or something along those lines. Okay? And awaiting the call of the Lord one day when we will be resurrected. And some people, though, don't want to be reminded that that's their future. Others don't like to go to funeral services because it, they just don't like to see people hurting. Been a part of a lot of funeral services, folks, and a lot of them in this room. And typically it's, it's the first three to six rows right here in the front. That's the family. And when you go to one of those services and you see those family members, does it hurt your heart for them? Seeing people experience great loss, does that hurt your heart? What about this one? Seeing addiction ruin people's lives. Does that hurt your heart? I mean, some of you, maybe that was your your old story. That was your Saul story. Before you had your come to Jesus moment. And Jesus saved you from that life. And therefore, when you see somebody else experiencing it and their life is laid low, you know what it feels like because you've been there. And when you see people in the midst of that, it hurts your heart. What about this one? Seeing children who aren't given the love that they deserve. Does that hurt your heart? I was born into and also married into uh, a family of nurses, right? Many of you are in families of teachers. There's something that teachers and nurses sometimes have in common. I'm going to speak specifically for a moment of OB nurses. My wife is an OB nurse. And there are times when she sees a baby brought into this life and it hurts her heart because she knows what that baby's going home to. Because it doesn't take long to see what mom and dad, sometimes just mom because dad's nowhere around. You teachers, you know what it's like. Now you get frustrated with those kiddos. You do, you do. But your heart's also broken for them because you know some of them are going home and it's not good. 
seeing children not getting the love that they deserve. Does that hurt your heart? What about this one? Kind of the other side of it. What about seeing single parents who are struggling to keep their heads above water? Does that hurt your heart? Doing everything they can. They're scratching and clawing. They're doing everything they can because they do love those kids or that kid and, and they're trying to give them something and it's hard because they don't have anybody to partner with. And they're trying to do it alone. Some of you have experienced that yourself and you know it's hard. Does that break your heart? Does that hurt your heart? Now this next one might be just a little bit different because this next one is more along the lines of the Apostle Paul and what was breaking his heart at the time he was writing Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it's this, seeing people with so many advantages in life but they still don't get it. Brothers and sisters, we live in the United States of America. The very first amendment is all about this. We can tell people about what we believe without repercussions. And man, they're trying to tear that one down like crazy. But I can tell you something. You're in a different part of this world trying to do that. You might be thrown in prison. But the people in the United States, they've got the opportunity to hear the message. They've been given gifts from God. Those gifts sometimes are... are are dragging them under the water because they won't acknowledge that he's the one who gives them. And they have all these advantages, much like the Jews had, and yet they will not submit to Christ. Does that break your heart? Some of them. Even in the good old United States of America, in the middle of the Bible Belt, maybe haven't been confronted with the truth. Christ, does that break your heart? Now, every one of those questions that I asked started with the word seeing. Because we should be seeing stuff in this life. And and it's not, it just doesn't end, begin and end with the seeing. What does the seeing lead us to? I told you the very beginning, now you don't have to say it with me this time. Some of you are kind of uncomfortable with it, all right? But again, that word from the New Testament that has everything to do with, with heartache and with compassion, all right? Splachnon, all right? Used a number of times in the New Testament. You know who it's used in relation to more than any other person in the New Testament? You know who the person is? Christ Jesus. Get your concordance out. You can look for it. You look at it yourself. I should have I counted the times. I didn't, but I looked, at, I looked at him. And the vast majority of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus Christ when he walked in this world. Here's the thing. Splachnon, that's a root word. When it's applied to Jesus, it looks a little bit different. It's in a little bit different form and this is the form splachnizomai say it again splachnizomai and it's not just hurting it's being moved by the hurt why don't you look over in Matthew chapter 20 and we get a prime example of this 
Matthew chapter 20. Look at verse 34. As you're turning there, I'll set it up for you. Last week, we looked at the rich young ruler. And then we looked at Zacchaeus. In between Christ meeting with the rich young ruler and meeting with Zacchaeus, he met with another. His name was Bartimaeus. Now, Matthew changes it up a little bit, doesn't give us a name, and says that there were two, not just one. But as Jesus came into Jericho, there was blind Bartimaeus and a friend of his right there with him. And they are crying out to Jesus as he comes in. They hear the crowd coming. They know it's big, and they've heard about this Jesus guy. Guys, they're blind. These people are blind, so they hear really, really well. And as he comes into town, they are crying out to him. Jesus hears their cry, and he gets their attention and says, Come to me. And all the people are trying to get him to shut up, all of a sudden say, Oh, he's calling for you. Better get up there. Look what happens when Jesus sees them. Verse 34. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Jesus didn't just hurt for these men. His hurt for them moved him to action. You know what? It's great to be about a cause. There's a lot of good causes. There are. There's some good causes. But you know something? The more I look and study the life of Jesus Christ, you know what I see? Jesus was not about causes. He was about people. That's what he was about. Here is the question. If you got nothing else today, nothing else, tune in now, okay? If this is the only thing you're going to take home with you, take this with you. Are we just going to hurt for others, or is that hurt going to move us to action? You say it again. Are we just going to hurt for others, or is that hurt going to move us to action? Hurting for others is a good thing, brothers and sisters. It means that we're not distracted. It means that we are actively placing the needs and the interests of others above our own. Because if we don't hurt for people, we're too focused on ourselves. But just hurting for others is not the goal. Jesus didn't just hurt for people. His hurt for them, his love for them, moved him to work for them. The Apostle Paul had his life completely transformed, folks. Completely transformed. Paul preached to the Jews with abandon. What I mean by that, I already told you, I'll tell you again. Every place he went, he started with the Jews. Every single place and guess what folks he knew before he ever opened his mouth when he came into these towns these cities these regions wherever he was going he knew what the likely result would be of him preaching the truth to the Jews there would be a few who would respond 
but the ones who did not respond often would be angered by his message and persecution would come. They whipped him. They beat him. They imprisoned him. They stoned him at one time to death. Seems like the Greek says that he was dead and he got back up again. God brought him back to life. Now, we don't know that for certain, but the Greek sure seems to paint that picture. At least they thought, they were, they thought he was dead. They were pretty good at stoning. This is what always awaited him when he preached the truth to the Jews. But he didn't care about the repercussions because he cared about them. What breaks your heart? And what are you going to do about it? When you're at the ball field and you see that idiot parent over there cussing out the ump, yeah, you're going to get mad at that idiot parent. (laughs) Are you going to hurt for him? You can apply it to all different situations in life. Because we go a lot of different places in life. 